The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good to see all of you here today. Hope you enjoyed the snow this week. I sure did. Based on the few pictures, I actually only ever look at Facebook about four times a year. That's because Jamie only looks at it four times a year. And uh, I don't have a Facebook account, so I have to look at hers. So I looked at it, I think, on... Must have been Saturday, Friday or Saturday, and the only thing I saw were pictures of people out in the snow. So I assume you enjoyed it from those few pictures I saw. I certainly did as well. We're going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And while you're getting there, let me just quickly give you a little bit of information about what's going on at this point in Philippians. Uh, Paul's in jail. Philippians is one of our prison epistles, we call it. He's in jail, most likely in Rome. Uh, could be Caesarea, or excuse me, could be uh, Ephesus, it could be somewhere else, but most likely in Rome. And this time it's pretty serious. Um, it's not one of the times where he's just, you know, taken into custody or in prison for a short period of time, uh, like some of the other instances. This time it's kind of a life and death situation. And so he's there and he's, jail, he's in jail. And if you think that prisons are bad today, they're nothing compared to then. And he has no one to take care of him. He has no one to help him. And so the church in Philippi, it's the first city Paul ministered in in Europe. The, the, the church there in Philippi has put together a gift and has sent it to him. And the book of Philippians is effectively a thank you note. It's really a, a letter he's writing back to them thanking them for what they've done, thanking them for their kindness. And in the process of thanking them, he encourages them, he exhorts them, he confronts them on a few things. And so it's a letter of teaching, but it's a little different than some of the other letters. It's this letter primarily of thanksgiving. And so we're going to read the opening section here of Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26. You'll pick up on the fact that he's in jail, and now you understand a little bit of why he's saying what he's saying. Look at verse 12, if you will. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers... What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed." but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we return to your word this week as we are attempting to build our understanding of what worship is, what true worship is. 
we learned last week that we are severely deficient in our understanding of this thing that we call worship. We tend to identify it with actions and with places and with rituals and with outward expressions when in fact that's not at all how you have defined it for us. And so, Lord, as we come again today and we continue to build on this understanding, will your Spirit open our eyes? Will you take my words and and use them, the ones that accurately reflect your truth, use them to open up the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds, so that we can see the truth of what you say about this? Help us, Lord, to understand it so that we can be a worshiping people, a people who live our lives all of our lives, every single day, every single action, so in a way that that brings worship, that brings glory and honor to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to uh, part two of what has become a three-part message now on the issue of worship. I did warn you about that last week, that it was possible that my two-part series might become a three-part series here uh, just happens sometimes as I'm working through things. But if you weren't here with us last week, I want to bring you up to speed on where we were, what we were looking at. Even if you were here last week, please do not tune me out because it's very, very important that we pick up our train of thought exactly where we were last time when we left. So just buckle up for a few minutes. We're going to go back through it. I began last week by observing what I just mentioned in my prayer that many people, in fact, I would argue most people, don't really understand what worship is. They think they do, and I sent you home with an assignment. Does anyone remember what that assignment was? What was it? You're, you're the only person nodding your head yes, so you got to say it. Right. Yeah, exactly. If I had come to you last Saturday and I said, define worship for me, what would you have said? So I hope you thought about that based on the blank stares I got when I asked that question. I'm guessing the answer is no, but we'll, we'll hope that you're just nervous. Um, I hope that you spend some time thinking about how you would have defined worship last Saturday. Because last Sunday, what we did was we said, okay, let's come up with a biblical definition of worship. Let, let's stop just assuming that we know what this thing is, and let's open up the Scriptures and let the Scriptures inform our understanding, give us a biblical definition of worship. And in order to do that, I asked a different question first. I didn't start with the simple question of what is worship. I asked the question about how many instructions the New Testament epistles give to the church about how we should worship when we gather together like this. Here in a service on a Sunday morning, we've gathered for our worship time, we call it. And what was the answer? How many instructions does the New Testament, do the New Testament epistles give? Zero. Very good. Hey, you see, you were listening, all right? Zero. None. And I said to us that that should shock us. It should shock us that out of all the other instructions that are given in the epistles to the church about how they should be the church, that no instructions are given to us on how we should worship when we gather together like this. And so the rest of our time last week was spent trying to understand why. Why weren't those instructions given? Clearly the epistles talk about worship, but just not about this time that we're, we're spending together right here. So why don't they give us those instructions? To do that, we began in the Old Testament. We looked at two things in the Old Testament. First, we looked at the number one word used for worship in the Old Testament. What was that word? 
Shaha, very good. Shaha. And what does Shaha mean? Do you remember? It means to bow down, to do obeisance, to worship. It's, it's very focused on the outward. It's very focused on the visible expression of respect and reverence to another person. It could be to a king. It could be to a great person. But most often in the Old Testament, this is what you do when you come in the presence of God. You shaha, you worship, you bow down, you make, uh, you make some form of obeisance to God as a sign of respect. Secondly, we looked at the number one place and form of worship in the Old Testament. And what's the number one place of worship? The temple or the tabernacle, and what's the number one form of worship in the Old Testament? Sacrifices. God gave Israel very, very, very detailed instructions about how they were to approach him when they came to worship. He, he told them, here is where you go, this is when you're supposed to come, and this is what you're supposed to do. Here's the type of animal. It's supposed to be sacrificed or killed in this particular way, presented to me in this particular way by this particular person at this particular time. When you look at the instructions given in the Old Testament about how worship was to be carried out, it is, I mean, you could really say it's scripted, sometimes even to the words that have to be said at the moment of sacrifice. It's very, very detailed. And by the time you get done examining both the words and the methods of worship in the Old Testament, you're drawn to a general conclusion, I said. And that general conclusion is this, that in the Old Testament, worship is associated with outward ritual, with visible displays of reverence and respect and honor, and with an emphasis on form and time and place. I said that's our general observation. Please note that because I could spend more time, and, and I may do that next week, explaining or nuancing just a bit that that's not all worship is in the Old Testament. But in a general way, that would be our observation. From there, we moved into the Gospels because we wanted to see what Jesus said about worship. And we, of course, have to change words now, right? Because Shaha is a Hebrew word. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament's written in what? Greek. So we needed a new word. Does anyone remember this word? Whoa, Mark Sonis with the, with the A+. Proskuneo. And we're lucky because the, that particular Greek word, it basically means the exact same thing. In fact, when the, the, the Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek-speaking Jews wanted to translate their Hebrew Bible into, into Greek, this was the word they used for shaha because it means to bow down, to do obeisance, to worship. It's the same exact concept. So when you come to the Gospels, it's all over the place. Those people are regularly falling down in front of Jesus, worshiping him. But when Jesus uses the word, when Jesus talks about worship, something's different. Something's very different. For example, when he talks about the temple, he, he doesn't talk about it in the same way that everybody else around him does. Remember, this is the number one place and form of worship there in, in his day, just like it was in the Old Testament. And yet he comes along and he sees money changers in there and he grabs a whip and he cleans it out and he does it. Why? Because his house is supposed to be called a house of sacrifice. Is that the right answer? No, it's supposed to be called a house of what? Prayer. House of prayer all the nations. He looks at this place that everyone else around him would have associated with sacrifice, being the number one form of worship. And he doesn't associate it with that. He associates it with a place where you're supposed to commune with God personally. That's weird compared to what you would expect. 
Secondly, I gave you the example of when he says about the temple that, hey, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And, and we don't appreciate this comment very well because we have no similar um, example in our culture. But to talk about destroying the temple is, is next to blasphemy. It'd be like if you went to the Middle East today and you said, hey, let's destroy the dome on the rock. <laughs> you're, you're probably not going to make it down the street. Someone's probably going to kill you. Jesus comes along and says, hey, destroy the temple. I don't care. Three days, I'll raise it up. It, it's blasphemous on one hand, but on the other hand, it's just outright crazy. It took decades to build this thing. You're going to raise it up in three days? Jesus, what do you mean? Well, he explains that later in that third example I gave you when he told his disciples that something greater than the temple is here. And who was he talking about? Himself. He says, look, you want to find out where God dwells with man on earth? I'll tell you. It's me. You want to, to find the place where you can commune with God? It's, it's here with me. And if you destroy this, three days, I'll raise it up. Oh, now we get it. The, Jesus doesn't see the temple and the sacrificial system as being primary anymore. He sees himself as being primary now. And the reason why he has such a different view of worship than everyone else around him is because of what we read there in John chapter 4, where we spent our time last week. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Just make sure you remember. John chapter 4 records the conversation of Jesus with who? The woman at the well. Remember her? And, you know, I didn't say this last week, and it's not really part of the message. I just was reflecting on this. How many times in her life had this lady gone to this well? Probably thousands. Nothing had ever happened. And yet this day, she meets Jesus. And it just struck me as I was reading that, and it's, this is a, probably a dumb comment, but it, it was the Lord used it in my own heart, how we never know that moment that will be the defining moment of our life. You never know when that's going to be. And here it was for her this particular day. She goes to this well and she meets this man who knows everything about her, who's offering her living water so that she'll never thirst again. This is unlike anything she's ever encountered before. And so I began reading to us, uh, once we got into the message, I began reading there in verse 19 where the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mound, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And guess what word she's using along the way there? Proskuneo is the word we use for worship, the word everyone would have used for worship pretty much, very similar to that of the Old Testament. Jesus is going to use it as well, but he's going to, to drastically redefine the word. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? Why? He says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. Because God is wanting such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's completely changing the paradigm. Completely. He says it's no longer going to be about the place. It's not going to be about the mountain. It's not going to be about Jerusalem. Not at all. It's going to be about spirit and truth. It's no longer going to be about the form, the outward form. It's going to be about something inward now, about spirit and about truth. Jesus radically redefines 
worship for this person, for this lady. He says it's no longer about uh, these outward things are no longer the things that make worship worship. Now, what makes worship worship is that it's done in spirit and in truth. And if, if you don't remember, I said that in spirit means that it's, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit and is primarily an inward thing. And in truth means that it's based on who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And so in the Gospels, Jesus redefines worship for his followers. And that's why, that's why by the time you get to the epistles, they don't give the instructions we might expect. They're they're not going to give instructions to us about the form, the time, the place of worship, because it's not about the form, the time, or the place. It's about an inward experience of the heart. And so there we're told to worship God in the Spirit of God and to put no confidence in the flesh. There we're told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because it's our spiritual worship. Why Why did he feel the need to define spiritual for us there, to emphasize it again? He wants to make sure you get it. Make sure you get it. We're talking about something inward. It's our spiritual worship. There we're told whether whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we can do it to the glory of God. You can do even the mundane things of life as an act of worship to Jesus. And so what the New Testament writers are trying to help you get, and this is where we ended. Sorry for the, the speedy delivery here. But what the New Testament writers are trying to help you get is that worship is no longer about Sundays or services or rituals or anything on the outward. No, here was the definition. True worship is about living all of life in a way that rightly values God. This was where we ended last Sunday. Do you remember all of that? Okay, you're, you're back with me, kind of running at full speed again. True worship is about living all of life in a way that rightly values God. Now, while I believe that that definition is 100% biblically accurate, I'm not convinced that it's 100% clear. There's a difference in the two. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to just pick up right where we left off. And I want to make sure that you understand what it means when we say that we want to rightly value God. And to do that, I brought us to Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians 1, Paul will explain to us what this means how we go about doing this, what has to be true in our hearts and inside of us for us to rightly value God in all of life. And we're going to reread, starting in verses 18, we're going to reread verses 18 to 21. Paul writes, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In verse 20 here, Paul says that his desire is that now as always, Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. That's just a, our definition stated in a little bit different way, okay? That true worship means that all of life is lived in a way that rightly values God. He's saying the same exact thing in a little bit different way. He wants everything about him, whether it's his life, even his death, to, to be an act of worship to Christ, not just what he's doing on Sundays, everything. And so our question is, 
What does Paul mean by all of this? And, and, and how can he feel this way? Well, I'd like to suggest it's because of three things. Number one, to rightly value God in all of life, you must be committed to the truth of Christ. You must be committed to the truth of Christ. Paul is a person who is fully committed to who Jesus is and to what he's done. He's not just playing church. He's not just a believer because mom and dad were a believer. In fact, mom and dad probably weren't. He's not just a believer because it's, it's culturally acceptable to be a believer. Because it's not culturally acceptable to be a believer. Remember, where is he as he's writing this? He's in prison. Listen to some of the statements he makes here in chapter 1. In verses 12 and 13, you see that he's okay with being in prison. I'm fine with this, he says. Why is he okay with being in prison? Because his imprisonment has served to do what? To advance the gospel. What gospel is he talking about? It's the good news that God's only son, Jesus Christ, came to die for our sins, for his sins, that Christ was willing to take the punishment on himself so that we could be forgiven. Paul is so committed to this message, to this truth, that he's fine with being in prison if it makes the message go out further. That's, that's pretty hardcore. I mean, you really got to buy into something to be okay with, with being in jail. You see another example of it here in verse 14. He says he rejoices that his imprisonment for the gospel is causing other believers to be more bold in speaking the word. He doesn't even necessarily care if they're doing it for the right reasons. He's just glad it's, it's going on. He's just happy that other people are out there preaching the word. That's commitment. Whether it's in the jail, it's outside the jail, the gospel is advancing, and, and Paul is happy with that. But that's, that's nothing compared to what he says here in verse 20, is it? I mean, it's one thing to be in prison for what you believe. It's another thing completely to be willing to die for it. I hold a lot of beliefs about a lot of different things, political things, economic things, social things, you name it. Some of them I hold very strongly, but not very many of them would I die for, okay? I, I have a certain view on taxes. I'm not going to die for my view on taxes. Pa Paul is so committed to, to what he believes, he, he's willing to die for it if needed. He says, I just want Christ to be honored, either by life or death. And, and the question that comes to my mind as I think about this is, are we that committed to what we believe? I mean, you say you believe that Jesus is God's only son. If someone put a gun to your head and asked you, do you really believe that, what would you say? And I know that's not a fair question because one, it's hard to imagine that or think through what you would do before that time actually came. And I hope that time never came for any of us. But would you be committed enough to say, yes, I believe this no matter what? Do you really believe that there is a God who sent his son? Do you really believe that Jesus lived a sinful, excuse me, a sinless life? Let's not be heretical this morning. Do you really believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? Do you really believe that his death on the cross was for your sins? Not our sins. I know it was for that too, but was for yours? That you had sinned against God? That you deserved God's punishment, his anger, his wrath? Do you believe that? that Jesus died for? Do you really believe that he rose again the third day? Do you believe that he's coming again? When I say to you that worship is about rightly valuing God in all of life, that right valuation that has to occur inside of us, it begins with a complete commitment to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
If you don't have that commitment, you cannot worship Him. I don't care what you do, what service you go to, what outward expression you like to to do to show it. If you're not fully committed to that truth, you can never be a worshiper of Jesus. Not only was Paul committed to the truth of Christ, he's also dependent on the Spirit of Christ. And you see this here in verse 19. He writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or death. In verse 20, he sets out his two desires, his two expectations that he has. Number one, negatively, he doesn't want to be ashamed, meaning he doesn't want anything in his life to bring question upon all of these truths that he's been preaching, that he's been believing, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the negative expectation. He doesn't want to be ashamed. But number two, positively, with full courage, now as always, I want Christ to be honored in my body. That's what he wants. These are his expectations. And so if you expect something, that must mean you have some amount of confidence that it's going gonna, it's gonna to occur, right? Well, where is Paul's confidence? What is it that gives him the hope that these things will actually come to pass? Well, you see that back in verse 19. He names two reasons why he has this confidence. One is through the prayers of the saints of the Philippians. But secondly, it's by the help of the Spirit. It's by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that all of this will turn out for my deliverance so that I won't be ashamed, so that I will now as always give Christ honor in my body. He recognizes it has to be dependent on the, on the Spirit. And I, I'm struck by how different Paul's view of deliverance is than my own. Because if I'm in jail, if I'm in jail and I write to you a letter and I say, hey, look, I know I'm going to be delivered today. Here's the reason I'm saying that. It's because I know that someone's going to come open the door and say, you may leave. Paul doesn't see deliverance the same way I would. Because Paul specifically says here, whether by life or by death, he looks at both options and said, either way, I'm delivered. If they kill me, I'm delivered from this world of sin and pain. I'm delivered to see my Savior face to face. But if they let me go, guess what? I'm delivered as well to keep serving Jesus Christ fully. Either way, I'll be delivered, he says. How can Paul feel this way? Well, verse 19 makes it clear for us. It's only through the help of the Spirit. This is what he's dependent on. In other words, this isn't a natural way for us to think and feel. Because some of you are sitting there thinking right now or feeling inside, I will probably never feel like that. (laughs) I don't feel that way now. I don't know that I would look at death as deliverance from anything. I look at death as something to be avoided at all costs. How how can a person write words like this? It doesn't come natural. And it doesn't just have to be about death. It doesn't come natural in any aspect of your life to want to live in a way that, that Paul describes here. All of that comes because the Spirit has enabled it in our hearts. And so how can we be true worshipers of God? How can we rightly value Him in all of life? I'm telling you this morning, it's nothing you can do. It's something the Spirit has to do in you. And just look at these first two points. What what does that sound an awful lot like? John chapter 4, 
When Jesus said, those who worship me must do it in spirit and in truth. It, is, it shouldn't surprise us that when we look at what Paul writes, it matches. He's, he's explaining true worship to us. And so if you're going to rightly value God, you've got you to depend on the spirit. Number three, not only was Paul committed to the truth of Christ, and he was dependent on the spirit of Christ, but he was also convinced of the worth of Christ. And this is where we really get into the value part of this, okay, to understand the word value in my definition. In verse 20, Paul says that he wants Christ to be honored in his body, whether by life or death. He wants it all to be an expression of worship to God. But you don't really understand why he says this until you get to verse 21. Because in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's one of those verses that's often quoted but seldom understood. The, the word for here tells you that this is his reason. Okay, Verse 21 is explaining verse 20. You want to know why I want to live this way? You want to know why I want Christ to be honored in my life, in my body, whether by life or by death? Here's why. It's caused for me, to me, this is the reason. If I live, it's Christ, and if I die, it's gain. And I want to focus on the second one, on the second one first. He says that to die is gain. The word gain here is an economic term. It's a financial term. This is the word that your financial advisor would use if you were sitting across the table from him and he said, hey, look, you've, you've experienced some, some great gains in your 401k this year. It's the same term. It's, it's profit. It's a benefit. It's a good thing. It's, it's something that you would desperately want, right? Because you don't want to retire poor. Paul says, when I look at death, I see death as a gain, as profit as a benefit to me. Why? Well, in verse 23, he writes that his desire is to depart and be with Christ because it's far what? Better. That's why he sees it as gain. Because to him, as he looks at the options to stay or to go, the idea of going and being with Christ is so much better. It's not that he dislikes the world. He's not suicidal like he's trying to escape. He's not wanting to get away from anything as much as he's wanting to get to something. That's the difference here. Clearly, Paul sees Christ as the most valuable thing in his life, and so he wants to be where Christ is, which, just as a quick side note, seems to be a good way of figuring out what you value. What do you want to be with the most? Notice I said what. Some people want to be with their money the most, and so they do whatever they can to be with it. Some people want to be with their work the most because they love their work and they want to be with it. Some people want to be with their family the most, and so they do whatever it takes to be with it. Your heart will want to be with the thing you value most. For as Jesus said it, well, let me ask you, what did Jesus say? Where your hearts are or where your treasure is? I already gave it away. That was, that was pointless. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Obviously, Paul's treasure is not on this world. Paul looks at the thing he values most in his life and sees Jesus, and he's like, okay, well, Jesus is at the right hand of the, of the, of the Father there in heaven. If I could be with him, that would be better. He values Christ most of all, but, but that doesn't mean that wanting death is the only way to show that you value Christ, because if that's where we ended this message, I think everyone will walk out of here like, I will never value Christ. You struggle with this. I struggle with this. I don't know that if the Lord will ever in his kindness bring me to the point of spiritual maturity where I would say, yes, 
Christ is so much better, I wish I could die and go be with him right now. I'm not there today, I can tell you that. Just being honest with you. Thankfully, though, it's not the only option. Because not only can we value Christ by the way we view death, but we can also value Christ in the way we live life. In the way we live life. Because before he makes a statement about dying being gain, he says that for him to live is Christ. If he lives, he's going to live in such a way that Christ is preeminent in everything. Uh, Turn over to chapter 3 just for a moment. It's only a couple pages away. Turn over to chapter 3. Because in verse 8, Paul is going to talk about his view of life, his view of living in this world. And I want you to see what he says. If you don't have your Bible, I will put it on the screen. In verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. You know this verse well because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may... Oh, what word is that? Gain Christ. It's the same word. He he says, look, if I keep living, I'm going to live in such a way that even now I see Christ as my gain, as my profit, as my benefit, and everything else compared to that garbage. He's not talking about death this time. He's talking about the world he lives in and how he views it. He's like, houses aren't gain. Christ is gain. Money's not gain. Christ is gain. It's not that there's anything wrong with a house or with money. It's just that in the end, they're they're not as valuable. And so whether he's talking about living or dying, whatever it is, now as always, it's clear, Paul sees Jesus as being the most valuable thing to him in all of life. And that's the attitude we need if if we're going to truly worship him. If we're going to value him in all of our lives as well, we have to be committed to the truth of Christ, need to be dependent on the spirit of Christ, and we need to be convinced of the worth of Christ above everything else. This is what it means to rightly value God. Now, can I apply this for us for a moment? And I will say this now, and I'll say it again at the end. We're not done. we got one more week, okay? I promise one more, no more after that. One more week on worship. But I want to at least apply these concepts for you now in a way that will help you as you go home to think about worship correctly based on that definition I gave you. So when Paul writes to us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do it to the glory of God, we can do it as an act of worship, What exactly does that mean based on all that we've learned over the past two weeks? How do I rightly value God when I'm eating? And I've chosen eating. Perhaps it's not the best example, but I've chosen that one because it's one that we all have in common. I could say, you know, how do I rightly value God and be married? Well, not everybody's married. How do I rightly value God with my children? Not everybody has kids. But we all eat, right? And everybody quotes this verse, whether they understand it or not, they quote the verse, so let's try to figure it out. How do you rightly value God with eating? How do you eat to the glory of God? Well, first, you begin by remembering the truth that everything you have is from God's hand. Everything. You begin by remembering the fact that God made it and that he has provided it. You see, this to me is the real value of thanking God before we, before we eat our food. Like, what verse in the Bible would you turn to to support that? If someone said, hey, prove it to me in the Bible while we pray before we eat. Where would you go? You know, you got to think about that one for a few minutes, I bet. There's a couple of examples, and there's a couple of comments that are made about things being received if, they're, if we thank God for them. But 
I don't think you're going to find a verse that says every Christian has to pray before they eat their McDonald's, okay? It's just not there. But why do we do it? I think it's a good practice because it reminds us, it forces us to remember the fact that everything we have is from God's hands, that we didn't provide this, that he did. And you say, well, I worked and I earned it. I earned the paycheck that bought it. Or you say, oh, I went to the store and I took it off the shelf and I'm the one who cooked it. I didn't say you didn't participate. I just simply said you didn't provide it. There's a big difference in participation and provision. Because who gave you the ability to have the job you have? Who gave you the the strength and knowledge to do all the things you did to get it ready? It certainly wasn't you, despite what you may feel. It was God in the end. Whether you participated in it or not, it was God who provided all of this for us. And so when we thank God for our daily bread, it's a way of reminding ourselves that everything we have is from His hand not ours. And, and, and please understand something about this particular point. And this is, I'm, I'm probably being unwise to go into such detail about one very, very specific thing. So please understand that I'm not simply suggesting that you go through a family ritual every time you sit down. God doesn't care about ritual. We learned that when we talked about prayer. What he does care about is a heart that recognizes that everything we have was ultimately his. And so as an expression of that, it's a good exercise for us as his children to thank him. It's an act of worship, I would say. It shows our dependence on him. Second, we rightly value God when eating, when we enjoy his provision. Just think about all the good things God has made. The cold this week, you guys know I like cold. I don't like summer at all. But the cold this week has actually kind of made me a little bit, really a little bit, look forward to summer, just a tad. I'm not going to like commit too much on that one. And, and as I was thinking about summer this week, okay, sorry, two things came to my mind. Number one, there's nothing better in the summertime than going to the garden and picking a big, ripe, juicy tomato out of the garden, bring it inside, just slice it up, a little salt and pepper. Oh, that's heaven, right, Miss Evelyn? That's heaven right there. We love, Miss Evelyn and I were talking about that a couple weeks ago. Love that. Or, or here's your second one. Some of you are going to be like drooling after this one. After you've been cutting the grass and it's hot, you come inside and you get a big juicy slice of watermelon, seedless, seedless watermelon, and you take a bite and it's dripping down your chin, but you don't care because you're already dirty and you're just like, oh, that's, oh, that's good. Who made that food taste so delicious? You know the answer, right? God. But let me ask you a question you probably never thought of before. Why? Why did he make the food delicious? Why didn't he make us like our cars, where all we just need is to put something in? The car doesn't taste the gas, okay, unless you think your car's a real person. And some of you talk to your car like it's a real person, I, I think. But um, the car doesn't taste the gas. It, it nearly, it just needs input so it can function. Why didn't God make us like that? Where all we just need is put a little things in. They all taste the same. It's bland. We have no taste buds. Nothing, nothing has flavor. Why did God make things delicious? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because God wanted us to enjoy it. He is our father, is he not? And dads, you understand this comment, that when you give gifts to your children, you want them to enjoy it. That's what makes Christmas exciting for me. It's not what I get. I don't ever care about what I get anymore. I love when we give gifts to our kids and I see their face go boom, and they light up because they're so excited about it. It is my joy to watch my children enjoy what I've given them. And I think God must enjoy watching our enjoyment as well. 
You must find pleasure in our pleasure with his beautiful, wonderful creation. And so to to worship God doesn't mean we have to be monks, where we have to like remove ourselves from every pleasure and happiness of life and just eat gruel every day so that we can remember that God is better than the food we eat. That's not worshiping God. Worshiping God is enjoying the goodness of what he has given in a way that brings honor to him. And then thirdly, thirdly, we rightly value God when we long for the giver of the food more than the food itself. Because no matter how good that watermelon may taste, its goodness is nowhere near compared to that of God's goodness for, to me. No, no matter how much food God provides for me in this life, it will never, ever compare to what he has provided for me in Christ. Never. And so even as I'm eating, I'm reminded of the goodness and the provision of God, which found its ultimate expression not in a watermelon, but in the sending of his son. It brings me back. It brings me back to Christ. So you say, Stacy, I, I really want to, to value God this year. I really want to live a life of worship in 2013. That's the challenge. That's what I'm, I'm calling us to as a church. This is our resolution series here. So I'm saying we need to be pursuing this individually and corporately. Say, so Stacy, I really want to do it. Where do I begin? I feel so far away from, from Paul and how he thinks and feels, and I'm kind of discouraged by that. Please, 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 if you walk out of here discouraged, I have failed. My purpose with these two messages so far, and we've got one more to go, and we're gonna, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger again. But my purpose with these two messages so far has not been to discourage you. It's not been to, to take a burden and put it on your back and say, here, walk out with that this week and enjoy, okay? That's not been my purpose. My purpose has been to set you free, to understand that worship isn't about all the externals. It's not about all the doings. It's about something that Christ is doing in us. It's about who we are on the inside in Christ because all the things we've talked about today have been rooted in Christ. And so if you're committed to the truth of who he is, if you're dependent on his spirit, and if you're convinced of his worth, then I guarantee you, you can live a life of worship this year. It just all comes back to Christ. And next week, we'll see this even more when we talk about how we move forward with that. Father, I come to you again now as we pause. That's all we're doing. We're just pausing for one more Sunday as we're trying to really understand this thing called worship. And so far, Lord, we, we get it. We see it in your scriptures. It's not about the externals. It's about rightly valuing you in all of life. And the fact of the matter is we can't have a right evaluation of you apart from your son. We, we can't think right thoughts about you and feel right feelings towards you apart from your son and apart from what your spirit does in us. And so today, Lord, we end our time coming to you just saying, Lord, we need Christ. We need the truth of who he is and what he has done to fully permeate everything about us so that when we, when we say we believe it, we really believe it. We're dependent on you, Jesus. We need your spirit to open up the eyes of our soul so that we can see all of your worth for what it is because on my own, I know, I know it. I can never see you as being more worthy than this life, but by your spirit, I can be changed. I can be transformed, as you say in Romans 12. And so, Lord, I come to you now and I say, will you please help us? Our act of worship today may be nothing more than us simply coming on our knees here at this very moment saying, Father, we want to worship you more. 
We want to value you more. We want to see your worth. We want to see your beauty. We want to enjoy you more than we enjoy your blessings. Our hearts may be cold, but you have awakened them enough to see that you are what we need. And so we come to you today as our act of worship, begging you, asking you, help us see Christ, to love Christ, to depend on Christ, to value Christ in everything. And as we come together again next week, Father, I pray that even now you will prepare our hearts that as we talk about how this this looks, what this looks like, how we go about doing it as we try to make it practical, that you will change us so that this year will be a year that we actually live as an act of worship to you. We ask all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.